Good evening, everybody. If you get a Bible out, open it up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin there in just a moment. Acts, the second chapter. It's just the second time attempting this, but I'm going to attempt to preach without the benefit of notes. I do have something over here. It's got some quotations and stuff on it that I'll use, but because I'm not using notes does not mean that I have not studied and prepared. We will talk about some things tonight that I thought about an awful lot, and I hope that they'll be helpful to you. Tonight is Q&A night, and I've got one just kind of broad general question that we're going to work with in just a few moments from the Word of God, and hope we'll have some things that will be helpful for us, and I'm going to actually challenge you uh, in, a, in a major way uh, at the end of this lesson. Great to see you tonight. Glad to have those who are visiting with us. We appreciate so much your, your coming to be with us, and hope you find everything that we're doing tonight to be done in spirit and truth, and the things that I'll say for the next few minutes, that they'll be found in keeping with what the New Testament teaches. If you've got a question of anything that we do or anything that I say, you feel free to bring that up. We'd be glad to talk about those things with an open Bible. In Acts, the second chapter, I'd like to read here beginning in verse 36. Verse 36 is the concluding statement to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That is, that great audience that had been assembled there on Pentecost. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do you ever just stop and think about why it is that we do what we do? And I don't just mean that in a general way. I'm actually specifically asking, do you ever stop and think about why we do what we do in our assemblies? When we come together and worship, the various things that we do, the, the, the activities that are involved in our worship services, do you ever stop and think about why we're doing those things? What's the purpose of those things? Uh, do we know that we're doing that in a way that God approves of? Uh, how does all that happen? And how do we know that we're doing that in the right way? I, I find myself doing that quite often with various things, and it's not because I'm looking for for holes or faults in what we're doing, but it's just good to be good to be reminded of those things and to be uh, have a better understanding of why it is that we do what we do. I did a little bit of that last Sunday when I preached about singing, talked a little bit about why we do that, what's the significance of that, and and those sorts of things. But actually, a lesson like that, talking about singing, that's that's kind of obvious. The Bible's got some very clear commands that when Christians come together, we're to sing, we're to teach and admonish one another in song, and so. Maybe we don't have a lot of those questions about, you know, why do we really do that? And are we sure we're doing the right thing? No, the Bible says do that, and so we do that. But what about some of the other things that we do? Specifically this evening, I'm asking and I'm thinking about, what about that thing that we do that we call the invitation? What's going on there with that? Why do we do that? Where'd that come from? What's that all about? I was actually having a conversation with someone. It was just kind of just casually brought up, so this wasn't like a... A real serious question that was submitted to me for Q&A, which is something that came up in the course of that conversation and just kind of got me to thinking about the idea of, well, what is that? What is this invitation thing? 
That's a pretty regular fixture in our assemblies, is it not? On Wednesday nights, our duty roster has a different man scheduled every single Wednesday night, and he's going to get up and he's going to deliver the invitation. We've got a lot of great guys here who bring out some great thoughts during the, the invitation time. And they're going to get up and they're going to present some ideas, some things that are going to challenge us and encourage us and especially persuade us to make our life right with God if there's some corrections that need to be made. And then, of course, every Sunday when I get up to preach or whoever's filling this pulpit... At the conclusion of that sermon on Sunday morning, you're going to hear me offer the invitation. We come back again on Sunday night. At the end of that lesson, I'm going to offer the invitation. That's just very much a fixture of what we do. And I must tell you that of all the congregations that I've been associated with throughout my life, every one of them have something that they call the invitation. And it's done regularly and frequently. And I think with good reason. The idea of offering people uh, the opportunity to be able to respond and to make their life right with God. That's a great great concept and a great idea. The question that came up in my discussion with this uh, other individual was, well, do we see that in the Bible? I mean, do we have like a specific example of an assembly, a church assembly, and a sermon being preached, and then at the end of that, that there is a, a formal invitation? And I kind of scratched my head about that a little bit, and i got to tell you, I don't know that I was able to come to maybe a specific conclusion other than maybe what we read right here in Acts chapter 2. This is maybe the closest thing that I can find to something that resembles what we do whenever we offer the invitation. Peter has preached for several verses here this powerful and amazing sermon about Jesus persuading and showing these folks that He's the Son of God. And he concludes it in verse 36 with this fact that you all crucified Him And He is the Lord. He is God's Son. And of course, that message had an effect on those folks. It pricked them in their hearts, cut them to their hearts. And the result of that is those people just start to cry out and ask, Hey, what do we do? Now, I don't know exactly how that looked, but I'm guessing it probably did not necessarily look like our assemblies. When I get up and preach, people don't holler out from the crowd, Hey, McKibben! What do I need to do as a result of what you just preached? That that doesn't happen. And so maybe finding an exact parallel with what we do and what's going on here in Acts chapter 2 might be a little bit of a stretch. But what Peter then does in response to that is he does offer them the opportunity. Hey, here's, here's what you need to do. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. You need to do that in the name of the Lord. You can do that. You'll be saved. And that's a great idea and that's something that Again, we try to do that. That's kind of what we do. Guy gets up, does the invitation. He's usually going to say something along those lines about repentance, about baptism, about the steps that a person needs to do in order to make their life right with God and be in a right relationship with Him. And so maybe there is a, a little bit of scriptural precedence, but I would, again, I would suggest to you that what we do, what happens in our assemblies regularly, is not something I don't think any of us is going to be able to find like a specific biblical example of an invitation the way that we do it. Now, does that mean that what we're doing when we offer the invitation, that that's wrong, that's unscriptural, that we need to have like an actual verse that spells that out plain and clear, this is exactly how you do that? I don't believe so. I believe what happens when the invitation is offered, I believe that teaching is taking place. We have biblical commands and examples about teaching. That's something that takes place in the assemblies of God's people. And as well, it's an expedient. It's an expedient time for us to offer people the chance. Hey, you've 
heard some things. Hopefully it's been persuasive and helpful for you. If you find that there's some changes you need to make, hey, right now would be a great time. We're all here together already. There's people here that are ready to assist you. If you need to be baptized, we we got a whole tank of water up there just kind of already ready for occasions such as that. we got garments back here, people that will help get you immersed and take you through all of that. Sometimes we may have people in our assemblies that they're convicted by the things they hear and they just really don't even know what to do next. And so that's an opportunity to say, hey, we'll we'll help guide you through that. We'll, We'll take you by the hand and make sure that you do exactly what the Bible says that you need to do. And so I do believe that the idea of an invitation, that's a really good idea. And I'm going to submit to you tonight that that's a that that's an idea of human construct. I believe that it is a tradition, but I believe it's a good tradition. Just like Sunday evening services. It's a tradition. Not a biblical command says that we need to come together a second time on Sunday, but it's a tradition, and I think it's a good tradition. And it's a tradition I think we ought to keep, and ought to keep having a second service on Sunday. But this idea of an invitation, well, how did we get to where we are today with all of this? And that's where my conversation kind of went with this this individual, like, you know, how did we get to where we are today? And it got me to doing some digging, got me doing a whole lot of reading. And I do want to share a little bit of that with you uh, this evening for the next couple of minutes, and then I want to get to where I really want to get to this evening. The first thing that you should know is that the idea of an invitation is actually, as we know it, it's a relatively new innovation. And by that, I mean something that's only come along really in like the last couple hundred years. And to understand where the invitation idea came from, you really need to go back a little bit further. You need to go all the way back into the 1700s and learn a little bit about the mourner's bench. John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist Church, he is the man who innovated and instituted and come up with the idea of the mourner's bench. The whole concept behind the mourner's bench was this a bench, wooden bench, a row that would be there at the forefront of a, of a church building and a congregation, and if a person was convicted by things going on in their life, maybe they heard something in the sermon that day and it, it, it kind of pricked them and they felt like they needed to do something, their relationship with God just wasn't right or just didn't exist at all, then what they needed to do is they needed to go forward to this bench, maybe kneel down upon that bench, press their head to that bench, and they would then mourn in agony over their sins, over their wicked condition, the fact that they're out of out of fellowship with God. And that mourning would show an attitude of repentance. And through the course of that mourning, what would happen is all the other people in the congregation, they would be praying for that individual. Or maybe several individuals have come to the mourner's bench this day. And so everybody's praying for this person that God's going to help them and God's going to save them. And the phrase that you often hear when you're reading some of this literature back during the 1700s and 1800s is the idea of pray through. That once you've been prayed through, folks have prayed you through this, you finally then feel, hopefully, a sense of relief and that calm assurance that just comes over you, then that's that's your clue, that's your sign that you're saved. That you're in a right relationship with God, that all is well with you and the Lord. Now, we're not going to get into all the aspects of how that's not biblical, that that's not how you know that you're saved. Salvation is not based on your feelings. Salvation is not based upon praying a prayer or merely showing regret and repentance. Those are important things, but that's not all that there is to salvation. And unfortunately, as the restoration movement was kind of beginning to gain traction at the end of the 1700s and into the 1800s, actually many of those restoration preachers actually made use 
of the mourner's bench. You've probably heard of names like Barton Stone, Walter Scott, names along those lines. They often would conclude their sermons with a call for people to come to the mourner's bench if you have such a need. There's a fellow by the name of, of Peter Cartwright. He had uh, uh, attended a particular camp meeting that was going on uh, during that particular period of time. And in 1801, he wrote about that. He said to this meeting, and this meeting actually took place at Cane Ridge, that's here in Kentucky, he said, I repaired a guilty, wretched sinner. On the Saturday evening of said meeting, I went with weeping multitudes, and I bowed before the stand, before that, before that bench, and I earnestly prayed for mercy. And the remainder of the stuff that he wrote about talked about how he believed that that meant that he was saved as a result of doing that, coming to the mourner's bench at the conclusion of that sermon. Now, there's some other things that kind of go along with the invitation. When we talk about the invitation, one of the things that we often talk about in connection with the invitation is the invitation song. We call it a song of encouragement, but sometimes there's a song that goes along with that as people are being summoned to come and to respond to that invitation. Well, in 1806, there was a lady by the name of Frances Trollope, and she did some writing about a camp meeting that she had attended in an evangelical uh, meeting there in some place in Kentucky. It didn't specify where at in Kentucky. And she said this, and this may be one of the first instances of the idea of an invitation song going on. She said a hymn was sung, and while it continued, one or two long benches were cleared off. And it sent the people back to the lower part of the church. That is, so here's some people kind of sitting up on these front benches. And as that song began, those people got up, They then went to the back, made room here for these benches up front. The singing ceased, and again, the people were invited. And they were exhorted not to be ashamed of Jesus, but to put themselves upon the anxious seats. That's what the mercy, or excuse me, that's what the mourner's bench kind of began to be known as, was the anxious seat, and to then lay their heads on Jesus' bosom. And then the preacher said, once more we will sing that we may give you a time. And again... They sang a hymn. So that's one of the first earliest instances of the idea. Here's some kind of an invitation-y thing happening, and there's a song being done in connection with that, and how all that kind of works together to maybe motivate people to, to take action and to do something about the condition of their soul. However, as some of these restoration preachers like Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, and a lot of these guys, you've probably heard their names before, as a lot of these guys continued to, to study to look at their Bibles, and to try to just get back to the pattern of New Testament. That's what we're talking about. We talk about the restoration, trying to just restore what you read about in the New Testament. Folks kind of started to realize that, you know what? This mourner's bench stuff, this idea of just kind of praying through to get salvation, you really can't find that in the Bible. I'm really sure that what we're doing really is, is going to be really met with the approval of God. And so, Barton Stone... Uh, it's one of those big names. And in Concord, Kentucky, he wrote about this. This is in 1808. He said, I remember once about this time that we had a great meeting at Concord. And mourners were invited every day to collect before the stand. So they're having some kind of like a maybe a week-long meeting. And every night somebody's, hey, come forward. Come up here to the, to, to, to the mourner's seat, to the stand, and, and try to get salvation. In order for prayers, this being the custom of the times. And the brethren were praying daily for the same people. Notice this. But none of them seemed comforted. Here we're praying and praying and praying over these people to get salvation. And, well, at the end of it, these people don't feel very saved as a result of that. 
I was considering in my mind what could be the cause of that. Why don't these people feel very saved? And it occurred to me the words of Peter at Pentecost. It rolled through my mind, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I thought, if Peter were here, that's how he would address these mourners. And so I quickly arose and I addressed them in that same language and I urged them to comply. So here's this invitation being offered, and Barton Stone came to the recognition, biblically, that the idea of asking people to just come forward and pray at the, the mourner's bench, that, that, that's not in the Bible. How about instead we do what the Bible says? How about I urge people to come forward and to respond in the waters of baptism, in faith and obedience, the way the Bible describes how salvation works? Unfortunately, he was met to a pretty cold room. Nobody came forward that night. In fact, he was met with a lot of indifferent stares. Nobody wanted to do anything that night. That kind of soured him on the idea of continuing to offer an invitation in that way. And so he kind of relented from that for a little while. Alexander Campbell, though, was just outright against the idea of the mourner's bench or the the, the anxious seat or whatever it was called. He said it was unbiblical. That's not how people are saved. And on top of that, the idea of the mourner's bench, it just invites all kinds of emotionalism. Everybody's coming up and they're wallowing all over this bench and crying out and hollering and it's just unrestrained and uncontrolled. And Alexander Campbell said, that's just not biblical either. We just can't be having any of that. And so over time, that kind of started to phase out and then make way for kind of maybe what we're most accustomed to today. In 1826, this is the first, to my knowledge, this is the first recorded instance of this, a preacher by the name of B.F. Hall He was passing through and he visited uh, the Mulkey Meeting House. And that is, I believe, in Monroe County here in Kentucky, not that far uh, away from here. And I think it's actually a a state, special state place, got placards and stuff up about it. And he was invited to preach on this particular evening. And as the assembly, as the meeting time was beginning to kind kind of come to an end, he concluded his sermon and he asked the brother who had invited him to come and to preach, he said, Brother, would you, would you please bring our meeting to an end? And the brother, for whatever reason, said, No, I'm not going to bring the meeting to an end. And so, Brother B.F. Hall, still standing in front of the congregation, didn't really know what to do. He decided, Okay, I'll just preach a little bit more. And what I'll do is I'm going to just encourage people with that Acts 2 thing. I'm going to encourage them to do what Peter said, to repent and to be baptized. And that's exactly what he did. And the result of that was this. He said more than 20 persons came forward. I then requested their attention and I stated that one principal object in asking them forward was to then instruct them in the way of salvation. I occupied about an hour. This is actually an additional hour. I occupied about an hour in proving that pardon was promised in the gospel to penitent believers on condition of their baptism. We next engaged in prayer after which I conversed with them all one by one, and I found some who were willing to trust their Savior for remission in obeying His commandments. I took their confession in the hearing of a large congregation, and really the novelty of the whole procedure, if nothing else, it was calculated to attract the attention of the audience. This was, he says, the first time within the movement that baptism for the remission of sins was preached publicly with the invitation then being offered to the hearers. And whether that's accurate or not, maybe maybe somebody did before that. Uh, maybe, maybe there are other examples of that from around that same time. 
What then began to happen, slowly but surely, is that more and more preachers, as they continue to study their Bibles, they come to a better understanding about what God says about salvation and how all that's to work, they began to just do what this guy tried to do. Teach people about Jesus, admonish them, urge them to accept that call, to do that urgently. When we're together, that's an opportune time. Take advantage of that moment and respond to the gospel. And I especially like what this guy did. All these people come forward. And instead of just immediately dunking all of them under the water, he spent a little bit more time with all of them. Hey, I want to talk with you a little bit further. Make sure you understand what you're doing. Study about these things a little bit. Make sure that you're solid on this stuff before we ever even get in to the water. I like that an awful lot. And over time, what happened is we just kind of arrived to the place where we are today, where it's just very much the norm. Just about anywhere that you go in this country, if you visit a congregation of the Lord's people, you're going to hear a guy at the end of the sermon. He's going to offer the invitation. And he's probably going to end it with those magic words, as we stand and sing. And then everybody stands up and sings an invitation song. And people are then beckoned to come down the aisle, and the preacher's there waiting. Or sometimes maybe the elders are there waiting to, to help people who maybe do come forward and want to respond in baptism. Maybe somebody wants to come forward and confess some kind of a public thing that's been amiss in their life. Maybe they just want to request the prayers of their brothers and sisters. All kinds of things happen during that invitation time. And I went back and I actually kind of looked through the five and a half years that I've been here. And there have been a number of occasions where folks have came forward during the, the invitation formally who wanted to acknowledge sin in their life, who wanted to ask for the prayers of their brothers and sisters, several occasions like that. However, there's only been two instances where actually someone has come forward to be baptized during that invitation song right then and right there. Now... Does that mean, okay, well, the invitation, obviously, it ain't working anymore. It worked a lot back then. Twenty people coming up at once. Let's just chuck the whole thing. Well, I'm not, not in favor of just chucking the whole thing. I do still think there's value in offering an invitation like that. An opportunity for anybody to come forward and express whatever the need is in their life, and they're soliciting the help of the people who are here together. I think that's a good thing, and I believe the Bible uh, allows us the opportunity to do that. Now, having thrown all of that out there, about where all this kind of developed over time, what we need to do is we actually just need to kind of go back to really the very beginning of this. Because if we're going to have a discussion about offering an invitation, we need to ask, okay, well, on what biblical basis do we do that at all? And the biblical basis for that would be found in Matthew the 11th chapter. Would you find Matthew chapter 11? In Matthew chapter 11, these are some famous and wonderful words of our Savior Jesus Christ. And I would imagine for a person who is lost and in the world, maybe somebody who's come out of, of, of just living in the world, living in sin, and they're looking for some kind of a respite from the pain and the agony that sin has brought into their lives, I would imagine that these words really are just about the sweetest words that a person like that could possibly hear. Because it is in Matthew chapter 11 in verse 28 where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the Lord's invitation. And whenever I start talking at the end of a sermon... I'm offering that invitation. That's what this is. It's Christ's invitation. 
When a guy gets up on Wednesday night and offers the invitation, he's offering Christ's invitation. He's not offering the Lakeside Church of Christ invitation. Not offering that individual person's invitation. It's Jesus' invitation. And it is an invitation to come to Him. To find that rest. Here you've been packing around this heavy burden of sin. Hey, get that off your shoulders, Jesus says. I'll take that away from you. I'll give you a different kind of burden. It's a diff- it, it is a burden, but it's a different kind of burden. And it is a burden that ultimately will culminate in eternal glory. This is a wonderful invitation. It's an invitation that's open to all. Jesus in His parables even talks about the idea of a great banquet being thrown and how initially the invitations only go out to a select few. But when those individuals, they refuse to come, Jesus just says, alright, it's open to whoever. Anybody that wants to come, you come and you can take part in this invitation. You can take part in this great banquet. And that is heaven's invitation. It's an opportunity to come and to be right with God and ultimately to go and live with Him for all of eternity. Now, having said that that is Jesus' invitation, I guess one of the things that we could do at the conclusion of every service is we could just get up and just, just read that. Just recite those verses. This is Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And that would be more than enough, I believe. I believe those words are powerful in and of themselves. But did you know that there is also a sense in which there are others who then extend Jesus' invitation? Revelation chapter 22 talks about that. Go to the very last chapter of your Bible, near to the very last verse of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, this really, in many ways, provides just a very appropriate summary of the whole Bible, to say this near the very end of Scripture. In Revelation 22 and verse 17, John records this. He says, The Spirit and the Bride, they say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life, let them do that without price. The operative word there again and again and again is come. And there is a reason that oftentimes when I get up and speak, I will specifically use this word here. That I am or some other man is extending the invitation. You understand what I mean by that? It is merely an extension of the invitation that Jesus has initially offered. We're just echoing that, making that known to everybody else. And in this passage, did you notice that Jesus says there are several, there are several people who help extend that invitation. First of all, it says that the Spirit says come. Who's that? That would be the Holy Spirit of God. That person of the Godhead. The Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who came and guided those individuals, those men, those inspired men, in the writing of the Scriptures as He revealed the mind of God to those individuals. They wrote those things down and it is that book that you and I have before us, the Bible. And so as we're reading through these pages, what we're reading is we're reading the Spirit's invitation. All throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the end, it's the Holy Spirit saying, Come! Come and get some of this! All this stuff that God's been doing from eternity past, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, come and partake of this. You want some of this. And who else is saying come? Well, it says, let the one who hears say come. So here's some people who are who are hearing that invitation and hey, You ought to join in and echo that invitation. Let the one who's thirsty come. Hey, so here's somebody who maybe he's not yet come, but he's thinking about that. He sees the value in that. And so the admonition is, hey, you come too. And you even invite some other folks who might come. But I want to draw your attention to this one specific entity 
that invites as well. That's that one right there. The bride. The bride says, come. Who's the bride? The bride is us. We are the bride. You read your New Testament, you know that the bride of Christ is His church. That church, that beautiful body that He is looking to present to Himself with splendor and without spot or without blemish. It's us. It is the saved. It is Christians. It is each and every one of us. We are the bride of Christ. And Revelation 22 verse 17 says that we, we say come as well. And so we echo loudly and proudly, hey, come and be a part of this. We want you to know what we know. We want you to experience the blessings that we've come to know and experience. We want you to enjoy eternal life just like we are going to enjoy eternal life. And that is a wonderful invitation. And we need to be echoing that invitation. Now, with that in mind, with that idea of the bride saying, come, I want to then issue to you three specific, very pointed takeaways. And the last of these will be the most poignant of all. First of all, if it is the bride that says, come, and if we are the bride, since the bride is saying, come, then number one, when we stand up and sing that invitation song, You need to be singing. What good does it do for the Bible to say, hey, the bride says come, and now we're going to stand up and sing a song of encouragement to encourage people to do what? To come. And yet there are, I don't know, random people here and there, maybe even a quarter of the congregation, who's not saying that. Their mouths are closed. They're not singing out. They're not echoing those ideas in those invitation songs. If we're singing that song, and if you are part of the bride, you need to be singing, brother. You need to be singing, sister, especially during that song. Because the Bible says we're taking part in that. We're telling folks, come. It's a great opportunity. Do it now. We think being a Christian is the greatest thing going, and we want to let you know that through the words of this song. You need to sing with that invitation song sung. Number two, you need to be inviting people to Christ. And that one probably really goes without saying. And when I talk about inviting people to Christ, maybe that doesn't necessarily mean just jumping straight into, hey, do you want to be a Christian today? Maybe we need to back up a little bit. Maybe we need to do some things like invite people to read and study the Bible, talk and discuss the Bible, invite people to come to worship. We're having a gospel meeting here in a couple weeks. That's a wonderful opportunity to be inviting people to come. They're going to get to learn some things about Christ. They're going to be around other people who belong to Christ. All kinds of great things happen when we're inviting. And we want to be involved in that. That's called evangelism. That is the job of every single Christian, not just the job of the evangelist. All of us need to be involved in that. We all need to be invited. We need to be using our words, being offering those verbal invitations at every opportunity that we can. But then this third one, and this is the one that I really want you to think about. Since the bride is saying, come, what you really need to be doing is you need to be offering that invitation 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And the way that you do that is by living like a Christian. You understand that how you live, that that is extending an invitation of of some kind? It's sending some kind of message 
to the people that you come into contact with day after day. And the question is, what kind of invitation are you extending to them? Are you extending an invitation to them that is appealing? Something that looks like, hey, I'd like to have some of that. For example, do people see in your marriage that being a Christian just makes your marriage a lot better? That the fact that you're a Christian, men, that that just makes you a better husband. The fact that you're a Christian, that you're a part of, of the body of Christ, that that, ladies, that makes you a better wife. That if you're a parent, the fact that I'm a Christian, that I'm a part of the Lord's church, man, that, my family's in order. Yeah, we got, we got problems, but you know what? We're, we're, we're doing pretty good because we're trying to do things God's way and we have found that that is wonderful and that's a great way to do things. Let's do things God's way. Are people able to see that in your family? What about in the workplace when you go to work? Do your coworkers and the people around you, do they see that Christ is in you? Do they see when they come to work, do they see that, hey, you're, you're just that person that's got a good attitude about work? You see it as a, as, a, as a blessing that you're able to work and to earn a living? Do they see that you work hard? That, that you work as if you are working for Christ Himself? Or is maybe the invitation and the signal that you're sending them, is it something different? Is it... <sighs> work again. <laughs> Typing on the typewriter. I can't wait till I get out of here. Is that what they see from you? Just constantly moaning and griping and complaining all the time? That's how the world acts. They see that all the time. How refreshing is it to see a Christian, somebody who's got, got some pep in their step, got some joy in their heart, got some confidence and assurance about how they're living, how refreshing that is to other people. You know, Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians about the idea of being an aroma for Christ. What kind of aroma are you putting off for Christ? Are you putting off a beautiful aroma like a beautiful flower? Are you putting off a stink? Are you putting off something that just smells rotten in other people's nostrils? You need to think about that. Because in either case, I'm extending an invitation. It's either an invitation to, hey, come and be a part of this, or it's an invitation to, hey, you probably ought to just stay away from this because being a Christian really doesn't make your life any better. How am I living? What, what, what is my life demonstrating and showing to others? We sing that song sometimes. If I thought out of it, I asked Tom to, to lead it tonight. That song, Let the Beauty of Jesus Be Seen in Me. That is an amazing idea. We want to adorn the doctrine of Christ by the way that we live. Because in doing so, we are offering an amazing and powerful invitation. In fact, it probably is even more powerful than any invitation that I could get up from the pulpit and deliver with my words. By the way that you live, when people see that your walk matches your talk, that's a powerful invitation. And it helps to draw people to the kingdom of God. One more passage in the lesson of years. In Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians, the first chapter, this is the Apostle Paul. He's nearing what, at least in his mind, appears like it could be the end of his life. He is in prison, and he's not 100% certain as to what the future is going to hold, but he is certain about what he's going to do with whatever time he's got left. In Philippians chapter 1 and in verse 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will all turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope 
that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored. Some translations say exalted. Some translations say magnified. Christ is going to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I actually like the New Living Translation of that particular verse. Paul says, I trust that my life is going to bring honor to Christ. And if you are able to say that, that the way you are living, if that is bringing honor to Christ, then in that sense then, you are extending a very effective invitation. That's what Jesus wants you to do. And so, this evening, this is normally the time... Everybody kind of starts putting their Bibles away. Folks that are using the songbook, they're reaching for their songbook, getting it turned over to that invitation song. This evening, though, we're not singing an invitation song. 127, that's the closing song. We'll sing that here in just a few minutes. And there's a reason that we're not going to sing an invitation song tonight. And it's not because I have anything against offering an invitation or singing an invitation song. I've said this evening, I think that's a good thing. And Lord willing, the next time that I stand in this pulpit... I'm going to offer an invitation. Wednesday night when we come together, whoever's on to do the invitation, they're going to offer the invitation. We're going to continue to do that. But tonight, for this one occasion, I want to create just a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of awkwardness. In our class this morning with the young men in the training class, we've been talking about public speaking, and we started to talk about the idea of offering an invitation. And I asked them, I said, well, what would it be like if we didn't offer the invitation and sing an invitation song? And I think it was Tanner who just said, it'd be weird. And it would be kind of weird. And my hope is that the weirdness of us not offering the invitation in a formal way tonight and singing that invitation song, my hope is that that's going to stick in your mind. And you're going to remember this night. And not because of the fact that we didn't sing that invitation song, but because of the reason that we didn't sing that invitation song. Because tonight, what I'm challenging you to do I'm challenging you to be the invitation. That was that third point. That by your life, by your conduct, the words you say, how you live out amongst this world, you be the invitation that Jesus can be proud of. And so as I said, we'll offer the invitation the next time that I get up here. But tonight, I want to leave it at this. You be the invitation. That puts the onus on you. You take that. And you live with that.